This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I seriously love BetterHelp so much. They're one of my favorite sponsors, and I will tell you why I love them so much. When I started this podcast, I was going through a really rough time. I'm talking drug relapse, drug addiction, drug abuse, relationship issues, anxiety, depression. I was going through one of the craziest moves of my life, so therapy really helped me get through a lot of that. And online therapy is, in my opinion, even better than going to a therapist's office because, let's face it, our lives have changed the last year or so, and I just feel like online therapy is the best way to go. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in less than 48 hours. They really do match you with, with a therapist so quickly. It takes, in my case, less than 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which might not really be locally available in all areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's super easy to access your account. You can log in, you can send a message to your counselor really at any time you want, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, whatever you prefer. I like to do phone sessions sometimes because sometimes I like to, to go on a walk when I, go on, when I do my therapy sessions. It's really up to you. Traditional therapy can come with kind of a stressful energy attached to it. So I really love how BetterHelp is really controlled by the, the patient. If you want to connect with your therapist and communicate something with them, they have a journal feature, which I absolutely love. This journal feature has the option of sharing your journal entries with your therapist, but if you want to keep them totally uh, private and anonymous towards yourself, you don't have to share them with your therapist. But I really like this feature because for many of us, starting fresh with a new therapist gives us a lot of anxiety and it can trigger us. Um, so if you feel like that, you're not alone. I felt the same exact way because let's face it, a new therapist has to ask questions and try to get on the same page as where their client is. And sometimes rehashing our, our history of trauma and all the details can become kind of exhausting and a little bit annoying. So what I do when I start with a new therapist, like I did on BetterHelp, is I use the journal feature and I wrote kind of a lengthy email explaining to the therapist where what I've been through in the last few years, where I'm at right now, what I'm looking for in therapy, and what kind of therapy I've done, what kind of therapy I'm interested in, and what I'd like um, out of a therapist. So this is super important. If starting with a brand new therapist gives you panic or anxiety or stress, 
This is the most stress-free approach you could possibly do. I love how they matched me with someone with the experience and qualifications that I asked for. I personally asked for a therapist who had some experience with eating disorders, depression, and relationship trauma. Once BetterHelp matched me with my therapist, she messaged me right away and then I scheduled my first session with her for that week. The process is easy, effortless, and stress-free. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So if you're going through a hard time right now, and let's face it, so many of us are, whether it's emotional turbulence, depression, anxiety, relationship issues, LGBTQ issues, whatever it is, body image, self-esteem, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com vibe. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Vibe within listeners, you get 10% off of your first month of online counseling at betterhelp.com slash vibe. That's betterhelp.com slash vibe. Betterhelp.com slash vibe. Go start online therapy. DM me on Instagram. Let me know how it's going. And I hope that you get the help, the support, and the healing that you deserve. Welcome to the Vibe Within Podcast. I'm your host, Gab Cohen. Each week, we will connect through stories and conversations about wellness, yoga, addictions, spirituality, mental health, rituals, and everything in between. The goal is to transform our traumas into strengths to create the change we desire in our lives. My mission is to help others by shining awareness on real-life topics so we can learn new ways to heal physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Whatever you are going through in this moment, you are not alone, so let's connect and heal our vibe within. perform oral sex on each other. If that's not a great way to start this intro, I don't know what is. How are you guys doing out there? I have some really important questions to ask, and I have some really cool things that I'm going to go over in this intro. But yeah, first things first, I think my cats do oral sex on each other. Um, because my older cat, Nar, is fixed, and he's been fixed for quite some time, but he used to hump things a lot. Um, he doesn't really do that anymore, but then he started to do that to my newer cat, Gemini. And, you know, I obviously, like, get him off of her when he's trying to do that, but lately, when I catch them you know, cuddling or fucking around, it seems like she enjoys it too. So, 
it's just been interesting to witness their energy together because Nar is like this older man, you know, he's he's like three and a half years old, so technically that's, you know, a little bit older. It's like teenage years, maybe. And Gemini is not even a year old yet. So there's there's an age gap there. And I feel like Gemini enjoys when Nar um, gives her that attention. But sometimes it's really, really cute because Nar will like give her massages and um, she'll just kind of lay there and he'll just like touch her stomach and her back and sometimes he'll lick her and clean her. Um, if you're not a cat person, I'm very, very sorry for this intro. I'm not going to talk about my cats for too much longer, but I just want to know, is this normal for cats to basically perform oral sex on each other? Because I feel like he does other things than just want to hump her. I'll just leave it at that. Anyways, um, how are we doing out there? I was just listening to Jessica Lanyado's podcast, Ghost of a Podcast. It comes out every Sunday, and she talks about the astrological um, transits that are happening. And I just want to say, if a lot of you are struggling right now with a deeper, more intense depression or this feeling of um, angst or, you know, some feelings of resentment or psychological despair, anything um, that is shaking you up that could be because of the Saturn square Uranus transit that happened. And we're just going through a lot of transits. It's interesting to listen to that podcast because she really ties in like a mental health aspect to it. So I recommend that. Um, What else? I have some notes here that I wanted to talk about in the intro. Oh, okay. So, there is a lot of, let's see, how am I feeling this transit? I'm feeling like this, this annoyance of everything, and my depression is really skyrocketing, and my anxiety is skyrocketing. Like, last week, or last night, sorry, I was punching pillows, you guys, and I know that that's not something to be shameful of. But um, I had to punch a pillow like four times to release the energy. And that's a very healthy way to release energy. I hear tons of therapists and coaches and spiritual leaders and whatever talking about how important it is to release um, anger and just bottled up energy. And because if you don't let it out, it's going to keep bubbling inside of you and last night I just felt so uncomfortable I'm I've, I'm having a lot of hip pain I'm having a lot of inflammation swelling um, I feel like I need to go to the chiropractor again because that shit is magical so it just I just couldn't take it anymore so I was like smoking CBD and I was like punching pillows <laughs> um, it's a beautiful image right yeah, I'm not I'm not always like calm and love and light and that's the problem with Instagram is that um of course 
my photos and what I share and what I write and how I articulate it makes it seem like I'm looking back at the times that I was anxious or depressed or dealing with disordered eating or dealing with pain or whatever. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, when people are sharing on Instagram, it doesn't have to just be, oh, when I used to do this or when I used to feel this way. Like, things aren't that, like, black and white. Like, oh, I used to be depressed and now I got over it and now I don't deal with it anymore. It's like depression and, and anxiety come in waves and pain and inflammation come in waves and it's just the way that we handle it and the way that we deal with it is the the way that we you know can articulate ourselves through our lives but that's also what I wanted to to talk about in this intro is uh, movie recommendations and a documentary do- a documentary recommendation that I've recently um, watched is Fake Famous on HBO Max if you have it um, and I really liked the documentary. I don't want to spoil it. It's not a super long documentary, but um, one of the one of the people who are in the documentary, I am going to interview on this podcast. They already said they would. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm going to keep that a surprise, but I'm super excited to interview them. And basically, the the documentary just it just highlights and it shows perfectly how skewed the society is and how everybody is so hyper-focused on being famous and being known and being recognized. And there's a woman on the, on the documentary who says something very, very profound, and it hit me really hard. She said, when you're an infant and when you're a child, you know, when you're a baby, Everybody praises you for everything you do. You can't do you can't do anything wrong, right? Everybody's praising you even if you even if you do something, you know, fucked up like you you drop something on the ground and it shatters, nobody's going to be going to be angry at you, you know? So a lot of this craving and this desire and this toxic, you know, need to be famous, to be well known, to be seen um, and to be to become a celebrity of some sort, even if it's an influencer type celebrity, it 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 roots back down and into childhood and into this need or this craving to be loved and to be heard and to be accepted and to get attention and to be um, praised no matter what you do. It comes from a sense of lack. It comes from a sense of, you know, mental health, um, depression, childhood trauma, whatever it is. <clears throat> but um, this this documentary was really good. I, re- I recommend it. And then the other movie that I watched after that was The King of Staten Island with Pete um, Davidson. And it's uh, directed and produced by Judd Apatow, and the cast is just amazing. Steve Buscemi's in it, Bill Burr. Um, it's a really, really great cast. It's honestly one of the best movies that I've seen in probably years. It made me laugh and it made me cry, and it was really fucking good. Just a beautiful movie, so I recommend it. 
which is you know when you look at like when you look at the the cover of it or the you know the marketing you wouldn't think it's going to be this amazing film but it really is anything that Judd Apatow does is pretty good um what else health update uh I have been really focusing on health I went to the endocrinologist finally I had an appointment with her and I just want to say you guys if you're dealing with health issues or emotional stuff like mental health stuff and you go to a specialist be honest with them because this doctor's appointment for me was very different than all the rest because I was completely transparent with her I told her exactly what I've been dealing with um, over the last decade of my life with drugs with alcohol with disordered eating with birth control with thyroid medications with everything so it just made me feel really good to lay everything out on the table so that she knew exactly where I was coming from and so that she could order the correct labs and do the correct blood work and you know ask me what kind of supplements I'm on so it's really important to find a doctor that will listen to you I was super surprised that this woman um, and she was kind of young so maybe that's why but um, she spent like an hour with me and I've never had an endocrinologist appointment spend that much time with me so that was really nice I have to get some more blood work and also what I want to say is um, you know recently I was listening to the almost 30 podcast and in their intro Krista was talking about how she got prescribed um, thyroid medication for hormone imbalance and she was like I don't know if I want to take it and I just like don't want to you know have to rely on medication for the rest of my life which is you know totally understandable and I reached out to her and I told her you know there is a way to just try medication out and see if it works for you and you don't have to um, be a victim of how people say oh well if you start medication you're gonna be on it for the rest of your life for thyroid medication like that's not true there is a way to try medication see if it works for your body in very low doses and also incorporate the holistic healing modalities that you're using as well like supplements and herbs and Ayurveda and yoga and movement and breath work and just all the things that you're doing it's not one or the other it's not black and white and I think um, this has been a huge theme and realization for me because I'm finally realizing that if my thyroid and my endocrine system isn't working properly then it's okay to um, kind of surrender and allow that help and allow that that extra support to come through even if it's in the form of a pill um, honoring the body means being truthful with with thyself you know I, I made an episode last year heal thyself I forget what it's called but you can probably just um, search it on on Spotify heal thyself and it's all about you know being real with yourself and healing yourself through whatever it is that you need to incorporate in your life you know like there's no shame in taking medication um, at this point 
you know, if you're not familiar with thyroid and endocrine stuff, like a lot of people deal with it, not just women. Um, and it, it can take a toll on your psychological life. You know, it can take a toll on your mental health, depression, anxiety, instability with moods, um, just high and low energy fatigue. It's just, it's just too much sometimes. And I haven't been on medication for my thyroid for over two years because I decided to just stop taking it in, um, you know, a couple of years ago, just to see what, what it made me feel like. And I felt a lot better and then I felt a lot worse and then I felt better and then I felt worse. And that cycle started to just happen over and over and over again. And now I just, I don't even know how I feel right now. I feel okay, but I, I don't feel right. Um, mentally and there are some days physically where I'm just like this is not there's something wrong here you know but I do want to say that it's really it's really important to track your progress and to journal about how you were feeling this time last year or this time two years ago and really see how much progress you have made because chances are you have made a lot of changes and tweaks in your physical and mental and it's hard to realize that when you've just been living in your body and your experience day in and day out um like it's it's hard to notice like that's why people um when they start going to the gym they'll take before and after photos or when they're trying to lose a bunch of weight because when you're when you're in your body day in day out you can be like oh well I don't I haven't look I don't look that much different you know I've only lost a few pounds and then when you look at like the the before and after photo you you realize how much different you ha- you do look and how much more definition you have in your body and how much more toned you are and um, it's hard to to see yourself in a new way as you're changing because you're literally in your body and in your life and it's hard to notice those small tweaks you know like two years ago I was living in a place that made me just depressed I was living with roommates that were terrible I was you know going through a really hard time with my eating disorder and when I look at my life now I'm like oh wow like it really brings me a lot of gratitude and it really brings me a lot of like peace and hope and faith because um I can compare and contrast like how fucked up I was two years ago to to now so that's been a really um nice practice for me to just write in a list form like things I used to do things I don't do anymore things you know how my life was in 2018 2019 and how it is now in 2021 um, all right, what else I want to talk about? The gym. And so I have written down gym dudes. So, um, I've been going to the gym. I've been weightlifting. And I have to say, it's so entertaining to watch the energy and be around the energy of dudes at the gym. Because, I mean, obviously everybody has headphones on. Everybody's in their own little world. And I swear to God, these guys get so juiced up and they look in the mirror and it's like they're in their own like music video you know they have their their music playing in their ears whatever whatever it is but it's like it seems like it's something pretty intense because you can just see the look in their eyes and they're lifting weights and they're pumping iron and they're like rocking back and forth to the music and like they're just sometimes they're like even rapping you know like like 
<laughs> just uh, lip syncing. Yeah, that, there we go. I couldn't find my words. Uh, and it's just so entertaining. And there's one guy who I actually really wanted to like tap on the shoulder and be like, dude, what are you listening to? <laughs> I want to listen to that. But I thought that would be kind of weird. Um, yeah, just... I guess when you go to the gym, that's when you step into this alter ego rapper mentality. Uh, this is my music video where I'm pumping iron. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> Fuck. It's really funny. Um, what else? I need a new computer. I'm really surprised that this computer is even hanging on. There's like five keys that don't work. The M doesn't work. The P doesn't work. The J doesn't work. The four doesn't work. Um, I have to copy and paste those letters when I'm writing an email. It really fucking sucks. Or when I'm writing anything, I have to copy and paste it. So when I'm like writing these uh, podcast descriptions and all the show notes, yep. So I'm saving up for a new laptop. Um, I make all of my content and edit everything on this old MacBook Pro. And um, if you'd like to donate, you know, to help me support the podcast, there's a link in the show notes. Any donations appreciated. It's not necessary, but it is appreciated. Um, if you'd like to book a tarot reading, I put that link in the show notes too to my Etsy. If you need online yoga classes or meditations or you're interested in doing more meditation and journaling, I have my journaling and meditation course that's in my Etsy store as well. Um, I think that's it. So whatever you're dealing with right now, just keep in mind these astrological transits that are going on right now can definitely trigger some depression, anxiety, panic, the sense of like losing like missing out, feeling not good enough, you know, self-worth, imposter syndrome, a lot of that stuff. I recommend going and listening to Jessica Lignato's podcast, Ghost of a Podcast. Um, so yeah, that's it. This episode that we're getting into right now is really special to me. I got the chance to sit down and talk with Ailey Jolie, and I found her through some other podcast, I think, but she talks a lot about sex, food, the relationship with food and body, relationships, spirituality, eating disorders, trauma. Her work is very rooted in childhood trauma, and she's super into psychedelics and those types of healing modalities. We talk a lot about Buddhism and just the relationship and the connection between spirituality and sex and the relationship with our bodies and how we connect all of that to like how we were raised and our upbringing and she definitely gets vulnerable and shares um, a lot of her story with trauma and sexual abuse and sexual assault so um, slight trigger warning that this episode does have some of that in here um, she's a really cool person. She's Canadian. I feel like I fuck with Canadian people. I love their vibe. It seems like a lot of the people that I've interviewed on this podcast have been Canadian. Um, and a lot of my clients are Canadian too, I'm realizing. I think that I need to go to Canada. I've been to Canada once, and it was when I was 16, and it was when I was going through a really fucked up dark phase of my life, and I had a friend there, and I literally went 
and that's where I did ecstasy for the first time but I don't think that it worked because I was on antidepressants so it was like a very weird feeling that I had I remember we went to Tim Hortons and I remember we went to the mall and stole shit um, this girl was not a positive influence on my life um, I'm surprised that her parents even let me stay there I remember I was there for f the 1st of July which is like Canada Day um, equivalent to 4th of July here what else did we do? I went to um, Gay Pride in Montreal and I remember how weird I felt but I mean I don't know I was just exposed to that that culture very young um, this is a long time ago because I am, you know, not in my late 20s anymore. Um, that's it. Let's get into this episode with Ailey Jolie. You're really going to love it. She's so, like, calming and soothing and, um, accepting and just, it was a lovely, lovely chat and we get super deep and I love how we talked about Buddhism and spirituality and how it connects to all this shit. So enjoy and um, yeah. Here is Ailey Jolie. I um I think the first podcast I listened to you on was on Mary's Mary's cup of tea. Yes. And yeah. Um and everything that you were talking about from you know sexual trauma to sexual abuse linked to eating disorders and. Around that time, I was really honing in on um, recovery with disordered eating and just toxic cycles and behaviors, and I was just like at my wit's end. So when I heard you talking about this stuff in such a different way um, and embodiment, it was like exactly what I needed to hear. It was like so nourishing on a mental level, and um, it really just opened my eyes to the somatics of it, mm. of it all. Yes, there is oftentimes such a divide between, I would say, the realm of trauma therapy, which often now at least acknowledges the role of the body. Thank you. It's been a beautiful improvement. And the realm of eating disorders. And I think the divide in the two is often just a complexity in regards to like clinicians and how we train. But the cross-pollination of those two disciplines is just doesn't happen very often. And, and then in that space, there becomes this gap of individuals, at least like myself or, and lots of the clients I work with, where it's like, I have this history of trauma and I'm struggling with food and body. And yet I can't find a clinician who can hold both pieces, but I know that they're somehow related and everyone kind of knows how they're related, but how they're uniquely related is as individual as every person. And I think that leads to this kind of giant divide between the two. So as a clinician, I'm constantly working with people to put those pieces together for them to find how food or body was a distraction, a protective mechanism, a coping tool, um, their escape, their place of artisan. Like there's so many things that food and body can be to help someone get through something that is really overwhelming. And then there becomes a time where that mechanism needs to shift and change into something new as the trauma is more reprocessed or even looked at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, and what I've realized is that through the years of my eating disorder, um, it's shifted, it's breathed, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's danced in and out. Like there's been years where I was, 
didn't feel like I was engaging in too much of it. And I was engaging in drugs and alcohol and Mm -hmm. sex. And then there was years where I was, you know, dipping back into the eating disorder. But I've never thought for a moment that I've never had, like, there wasn't a moment in my recovery between drugs, alcohol, and eating disorder that I was, like, eating disorder free or recovered, Mm -hmm. which is, it's daunting at times because, with substance abuse, it's easy to go cold turkey off of something and work your steps and go to your meetings and, you mm-hmm. know, all of that. But what you're saying is it resonates with me really deeply because I go to therapy and it feels like the trauma and the eating disorder, um, they're two separate things. When I, when I talk to a therapist or I'm in group meetings or whatever, um, but they're so intertwined and it's, it's this gray area of mm-hmm. like, like establishing like what the triggers are. And there's so many layers when people talk about trauma. So I'd love to hear kind of your personal experience with how you think your eating disorder manifested, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, like what traumas you think, just to like kind of give an example yeah. to, to that. Of course. Um, yes. So my, I definitely look back and I view food as in many ways, the thing that allowed me to place all of my focus and also deeply understand the body-based violation that I was experiencing. So I have this very, um, confined and beautiful memory. I say beautiful and and I'm using it in a stretched way. It's very sacred to me, I guess is probably a more appropriate word. But the first time I was sexually abused by my uncle, I remember right after that experience going down and sitting at the table and I ate in my little like three and a half year old body, I ate all of the pizza that I could eat. And I remember the feverishness of eating all this pizza and feeling uncomfortable and having family commentary on how much I was eating. And in my little mind, I remember thinking, if I keep eating, if I keep saying I'm hungry, I can sit beside my mom and then I'm safe. And then I won't have to go back there. We were at like the swimming pool party. I won't have to go back out there with the other kids. And then I won't be abused again. And in this way, what I was doing, which there's now a lot of like neuroscience research around and I'm super fascinated by it. Essentially what I was doing was recreating the body-based violation that I had just experienced 45 minutes ago, but with an essence of control. So this way that my body had just been thrown into overwhelm in this experience of abuse, I was then doing the same with food, but trying to regulate the experience, trying to like, I'm now doing this. I'm now harming my body. I'm now filling it up to a place of discomfort. I'm now disassociating so much. I've I've eaten this much and I feel uncomfortable. I'm now taking back my power back by violating my body with food in a way that physiologically and neurologically mirrors how I was just sexually abused. And this link, I feel like, is the essence of at least where I feel like there can be a lot of traction in how we work with food and body and sexual abuse. And and the link between is understanding this mirroring of body-based violation that happens for people who have been sexually abused. So I look through kind of my story. And for me, even though that moment was like overindulging in food, my little psyche kind of switched into like a very extreme place of restriction and kind of 
Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say like flew under the radar, but because I was so young, when my anorexia started, it kind of became a culture that that's the norm. And I kind of grew up in this place of, you know, not feeling my body, kind of having grayish coloring through the eyes. Like I didn't see the world in full colors and I was just so malnourished. And that was my way of kind of creating this protective bubble of disassociation that I was hurting myself more than anyone who later went on to abuse me could hurt me because I already wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there was a moment and I feel like this kind of, it might be a blanket statement with eating disorders, but it seems to me that there's a moment of lack of control and Mm -hmm. some people are, you know, they go through that moment of lack of control when they're like very young. Um, most of the time it's family related. I've tended to see, I I go to a lot of eating disorder meetings virtually and it just seems that that's the the case, (laughs) you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing when you, when you explain that is like the, the body was violated obviously. And so the mind of the, of the child uh, tries to make sense of it because deep down they they knew that they were violated but but how how do they know for sure you know what I mean because it's a Mm -hmm. child and like the child wants to feel comfortable so they they make a a reason reasoning with the adult or reasoning with the bullshit that's going around them and then takes it out on on the body themselves because they're in control and I definitely relate to that for sure Yeah, for a little bit more like clarity, kind of what happens is when we experience any form of violation, we see this in neuroscience now with neuroplasticity and habit repatterning. But if we go back to Freud, he talks about repetition compulsion and what this this concept from then that's now being neurologically validated is that when we have something that happens to us that's out of our control, we are going to recreate that scenario either physiologically and how it feels in our body. If that's going to be dating someone who looks like an ex, going to another work environment that has toxic kind of feminine energy, it doesn't matter. We're going to go and find this. Our central nervous system is going to tune to create that state in, in essence and in hope that we can have a different experience. So with food, what I was trying to do by overeating was recreate the physiological kind of dysregulation, painful state in hopes that if I was doing it, maybe it would be different. Maybe there would be a different ending. Maybe I would be able to control it and get that resolution. So in this way, even though it's like kind of backwards that we end up mirroring the things that are most painful for us or dating the same guy again and again and again, if we use that example, it's really coming from this strong desire innately in the psyche to heal. Um, but it, it gets it gets looped in the, the trauma and in the dysregulation and in the overwhelm and it kind of loses its footing of how to do that exactly. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, like the spirit or like the soul is trying to like fix something that um, like scratching an itch, you know, that you can't you can't reach or something like you're trying like and and I love the the term of stuck in a loop not that I love being stuck in a loop but I feel (laughs) like that that just explains it so well I mean I feel like even though I'm 30 years old and I you know am not doing the same things that I was doing when I was 
in my anorexia phase um, in high school, I'm doing things that are similar in a different way. Like mm-hmm. the eating disorder behaviors has tr- has transformed as I've grown and gotten older. And maybe I'm not doing them to a T like what I was doing in high school, thankfully, because mm-hmm. I was very, very ill. Um, but they manifest in different ways. But like the patterns and the cycles are kind of the same still. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of that place that goes into the space of embodiment and where I got really curious. Um, last year I was taking a program through Harvard Medical School and it was all around trauma recovery. And I kind of left and I had this place of like, okay, so I really, I feel very confident in knowing how to do trauma reprocessing, but I don't know how to give my clients a new experience, which is what you're speaking to. It's like, if we don't give an embodied sense of pleasure or ease or satisfaction or containment, any of these kind of basic fundamental feeling states in the body that trauma avoids or an eating disorder completely washes away. If we don't give those to someone and really ground that in, then yes, this loop is going to continue and continue and continue. And that's a whole other um, way that psychotherapy and psychology is now moving and has some awareness of like, Therapy shouldn't just be hard. It should actually feel good. People that are coming to therapy probably know pain and they probably don't know pleasure. So maybe we need to sprinkle that in there. But it speaks to that loop. And the more embodied experiences you have of something different, the more your body is going to be able to shift between those two states and ideally get off the loop. I love that you said new experience because like, you know, the the body and the mind kind of don't know any any better. Like they don't no. know any other way because I can't really remember how my life was before my eating disorder. Like I was mm-hmm. so young. And so my question is for people who are safe and like, like for example, for me, my life is, is pretty good right now um, if I'm comparing it to when I was in the midst of my eating disorder. But I still have an eating disorder. <laughs> Even though my life is from an outside perspective, you know, I'm financially more secure, I have animals, I make a, a living, I am an adult and like all this and like, but there's still those remnants that mm-hmm. want me to to go back into my eating disorder and hyper focus and obsess about weight and weight loss and, and this and that and the way that clothes fit and fucking it's just it's just crazy. <laughs> and so my question for you is how can how can you help a client cultivate safety and calm like in the body when in your patient when when somebody's feeling very physically uncomfortable or just mm-hmm. distraught like physically. Yeah, so I have a kind of a two 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 answers to your question. The first one um, directly, like if someone is feeling a lot of discomfort in their body, and that is bringing up a lot of food and body based thoughts. Um, Anyone who works in somatics really acknowledges that saying be in your body is kind of one of the most oppressive statements that you can make. The body stores our trauma. Don't ask people to go there unless you can actually safely take them there and you can hold the container for them to be there. So I always say to clients, if you're feeling uncomfortable in your body or that's really overwhelming, specifically those that struggle with food and body, 
that's totally okay. There are beautiful resources that we can use for the mind to activate that sense of calm, to tap on that insular lobe, to alter the state of consciousness so you have more ease and more regulation through your central nervous system. Because for lots of people, myself included at one time, being in my body was just not a place that ease was going to exist. And so it's changing the narrative and some of that judgment that comes around, oh, like I have to be in my body to be calm or like that's where all the good calm exists. It's like, no, no, no. There's a way that you, that you can use the mind to engage in that way. One client specifically comes to mind um, very well in her recovery, um, wonderful to work with. And this client at that time still had a lot of um, food and body-based thoughts body felt really uncomfortable and that rapid kind of thinking we strategized together and I was like every time that rapid thinking comes on that's your wonderful mind that's curious and explorative and wants to learn and just has a lot of energy and it's putting it on food and body could we harness that energy somewhere else could you shift that into reading a book could you just let yourself fully get immersed in something else in that same way and for her, that was a really beautiful kind of transition point of like, every time I start obsessing, I'm just going to think that my mind is a little hyper and I'm going to go grab a book and I'm going to go sit down. Another client, it was art and it was using and focusing and really bringing the mind into a whole system with the body. Because if we felt anxious energy in our legs, most of us would be apt towards movement but when we feel anxious energy in our mind, there's a judgment of it when actually it's just, you know, we're, it's one part of the body that's experiencing something. So I always say that to people who feel uncomfortable in the body. I'm like, where is the discomfort? How can we mobilize it? How can we find that regulation again? Yeah. The, <laughs> um, wow. the sec second piece of your question, I feel really touches on the definitions of, of what is recovery and what is the standard that we are asking or desiring of ourselves when speaking of recovery from food and body. Um, if, after working in this field, I feel like oftentimes there's this expectation that I'll never have another food thought, I'll never have another body thought, or I'll never struggle. And I see this rhetoric coming a lot from therapists who are recovered or nutritionists who are recovered. Like, I don't, like, it just doesn't exist. And I worked with a nutritionist very early in my journey and she said to me, and I didn't like it at the time. And I was like, I don't like this statement, but it's brought me the most solace. Now, she said, the eating disorder will always be a door. There'll always be a door inside my mind to walk down. And some days when things are really tough, I may open that door and look around just to feel comfort. Mm -hmm. But I no longer just have one doorway to walk down. She's like, I have lots of other doors that I can go sit in. And I like this analogy because it makes it less restrictive around what recovered looks like because that restrictive black and white thinking of what is and isn't is the essence of what food and body struggles are based on. So I always kind of touch in those two places with clients when we're talking about still feeling uncomfortable in the body despite lots of time in recovery and, and such forth and a lot of growth. It's like, okay, where are we with these two things? Yeah. When you were talking about that, it just reminded me of the different mind states that can come with different stages of your eating disorder. Like, you know, when I was in the midst of it in high school, I was forced into treatment and I was the, the problem in the family. Like, I can't believe you're doing this. Do you see what you're doing to us? Like, 
And it's just, it's kind of funny because the reason why I was uh, leaning into my eating disorder and restriction and, and losing a bunch of weight was because it was my coping mechanism from the trauma and the bullshit that was happening in the family dynamic. So I always like to say, um, if the person's not ready, then they're not ready. Just mm-hmm. just like addiction. But when it's life and death, it's different. That's why I was forced in, into a facility. But what, what really pissed me off back then is that, um, I mean, an eating disorder treatment back then was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got this this energy from from the whole experience that it was my fault and you know how could you be doing this to yourself and instead of everyone changing like the family dynamic changing and my mom and my stepdad changing um because that that was the that was the trigger and it, to to this day it still is um mm-hmm. instead of you know the entire equation like the whole family sitting down and and understanding that it takes two to tango you know um that I felt like I was the one that needed to change and I was pinpointed and that's not a fun place to be and then that's when rebellion occurs and for me um cool I I quote unquote recovered from my eating disorder in their in their terms because I was a healthy weight and it's so sad to me when when um when people go through treatment and then they say, oh, well, nobody's really worried about me anymore because uh, I'm a healthy weight, you know, (laughs) but they're still suffering, Um, maybe even worse, which is a huge misconception of eating disorders. You don't have to be underweight to have one. You don't have to be underweight to be suffering. And what, what came up for me when I heard you talking about that is just like, so the different mind states. So now I'm, you know, I'm I'm an adult and I, at this point, I feel like my eating disorder is, is holding me back. It's torturing me. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's that nagging, you know, it's that, it's that part of me and that voice that just won't fuck off. And, um, before in high school that I loved it, you know, it was like, it was like giving me a high. It was, you know, it was that, that addiction to, control of the body of restriction blah 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 and now like it's manifested in different ways and I'm older and I can I can see it in a new way because I'm smarter now and I have more knowledge about mental health and the neural pathways and how it's so ingrained in my brain that in order for me to like those I I, I love hearing people talk about neuroplasticity and the neuroplast neuropathways because it just makes so much sense it's like those grooves in the brain are so deep that it's Mm -hmm. like you know how how can we unpave them and then repave them and then you know it's like it's really hard to decipher who who I am without the eating disorder like what's my preferences what are my actual Mm -hmm. feelings and thoughts and circling back to the embodiment piece, um, it's, it kind of makes me think like, okay, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like when Mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning and I feel like shit in my body, like my hip is fucked up and I'm feeling a lot of tension there and I'm swollen and I'm puffy, then that triggers my mind to feel anxious, to feel angry, to feel irritable and wanting to jump out of my skin. 
But if I wake up in the morning and I feel quote unquote thin, which this sounds terrible, but this is just how the eating disorder mind works. So if I have like a quote unquote thin day or like I'm feeling light in my body and I don't feel gross, then I'm like allowed to be happy. Do you have clients who've had that kind of mentality? I've definitely worked with people who, yes, for sure, when they're in that place with food and body struggling, the perception or sensations that come with feeling uh, lighter in their own skin, yes, can definitely trigger that place of euphoria. We we also know that restriction um, releases different neurochemicals in the brain that lead to a more elevated state, specifically for the first 72 hours. Um, sorry, after the first 72 hours. And so there are these neurochemical components that I, uh, I won't get into too much, but definitely those are a huge piece. And when I have a client who's, who's struggling in that way, what I often go back to is really this, this deeply rooted um, training and just like self that I have is the place of like mindfulness. So like if you wake up in the morning and you feel like shit in your body, it's that curiosity, like what parts of me feel actually uncomfortable right now? And if I hold my awareness on that body part that feels gross or this piece of me that I'm just feels really heavy or I'm just, I'm uncomfortable in me. If I hold my focus there, if I stay with the discomfort, what happens next? Can I stay with myself long enough to be in the unknown and patiently wait for something new to emerge? And if that can be done without the mind jumping in and applying a story, the body does have this way of unwinding itself and moving its own fluidity through to create a different feeling state. And so although challenging specifically at someone who's at the first portions of their food and body recovery, if we use that word, it's definitely a tool that can be used not even for those who are at the later stations, later portions of their recovery, but really for anyone and any, yeah, anyone who has a body that has those cycles that come from societal shame around what our body should or should not look like. Um, that's so ingrained in all of us. And the biggest antidote I'd, I've seen clinically in my work and research wise is the application of curiosity and that willingness to stay in the discomfort waiting for the emergence of something new. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's the thing is that the, nobody wants to feel uncomfortable. And Mm. I feel like this whole human experience is just, everybody is on a mission to feel at ease. Yes. And like, (laughs) that's the fucking, like, that's just, everybody is just trying to feel okay and feel at ease and feel comfortable And like, I'm really into Buddhism and I I go to like Dharma recovery meetings and it's very deeply rooted in in Buddhism and how it's just, all of it is don't attach, don't attach Mm -hmm. to, don't attach to happiness, don't attach to failures. Like it's, and it kind of sucks because it's like, okay, well, what, what can I feel? Mm -hmm. Um, And when we're talking about body, it's like, and eating disorders in particular, um, that voice. And after so many years of dealing with it, it's like, okay, well, if I can't trust what I look like in the mirror because I have body dysmorphia or just because the eating disorder just really doesn't have a a true grasp on what I look like, Mm -hmm. um, 
then what can I trust? You know, if, if I can't even trust myself with my thoughts, then how can I override that, that voice and start to repave those neural pathways? And how can I be okay with sitting with the discomfort? When I hear clients, or even as you kind of named right there, like, I can't even trust my thoughts. The place that I go oftentimes is, okay, if, if, if you feel like you can't trust your thoughts, why did you think you ever could? And just acknowledging like 70,000 of the thoughts that we have each day of like 100,000, I think it is, are old thoughts. They've been there for a very long time. They're, there's no new information coming in there. And acknowledging that like 0.00001% of the stimuli around us is actually filtered through the mind. The rest is filtered through the body. So if you're having these like very vicious body-based thoughts about how you appear or how you feel, the place that and I go is like, okay, the mind is in that experience right now. That's where your attention keeps going. What else is going on right now? Because for you to notice those thoughts or for you to have a judgment that you can't trust them, there is a different observer happening. There is another piece of awareness. And maybe that awareness isn't mind-based. Maybe it's sensation-based. Maybe it's noticing your breath and that's when you hear the thought inside. There's something else inside. And what happens if you trust that instead or trust your gauge that you can't trust your mind right now? And it's this like subtle kind of pulling apart of things and further pulling apart this conception from capitalism that, yes, life should be easy and easeful. And the curiosity I always have when I hear that from someone is like, why would you want to live a life that's sedated? It doesn't make sense to me. Life should have these ebbs and flows of things that are painful and pleasurable and our capacity to hold the pain will directly mirror our capacity to hold the pleasure. And so can I really be with myself in that pain when I'm having that body discomfort we spoke about a few moments ago? Can I notice the pain of my thoughts right now and and be in that fully without losing myself completely in it? And there's a subtle difference there that makes all of the difference when we're speaking about be an embodied kind of eating disorder or food and body recovery. Like the word surrender just came up when you were talking about that. And I feel like that's such a loaded word, especially um, in like the spiritual community, like just surrender and everything <laughs> will be fine. And it's like, but how, like if, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm saying, I'm asking these questions that as if, yeah. you know, as if somebody's just, in the trenches, you know, um, and there's moments where I'm in the trenches still. And Mm -hmm. there's moments and days where I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm so much better. And I think that's part of the dance of recovery. It's like Mm -hmm. not linear, but like what you just were saying, something, something came into my mind. I'm not sure why, but you triggered something, um, in a good way because with like the feeling of the discomfort, um, I kind of know, that moment in my childhood where I first started getting uncomfortable in my body and it was obviously when I was going through puberty and I was gaining weight and I remember like looking at a picture of me before I was gaining weight and I was like oh I just want to look and feel like that because I wasn't going through puberty and and that's why I I linked um 
being smaller to feeling comfortable. Mm. I'm curious, like, is that time in your life, like, there was lots of discomfort or, like, elsewhere or mostly it all got localized in the body or? So it was both because, yeah, like, yes, I was uncomfortable in my body because of the puberty, but also I was in a very unhealthy and toxic family dynamic. My mom um, my mom went bankrupt. We, she lost her house and we had to move in with my stepdad who is like just a very toxic person. And um, me and my sister were kind of just like thrown in, in the trenches. Like we had to live in this house with this, with this man that we didn't even like. Um, so there was a lack of control there. And my mother, just that whole dynamic really traumatized me. Um, so just being in that house and being around that and it, it ended up just being not a good place to live because he's emotionally and mentally abusive and manipulative and he's a narcissist. So it ended, it ended up that being in that dynamic in that house was the ultimate trigger for my anorexia. And that's when I, um, you know, that's, that's when it happened. And then when I went to treatment, um, that's after, after I got out of treatment, I realized that I couldn't live there anymore. So Mm -hmm. that's when I started living with my father and my father is awesome. I have a really great relationship with him, but, um, that is the basis of my eating disorder pretty much is the, the toxic family dynamic with my mom and my stepdad and feeling not in control and her being controlled. And it was just all of it. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when, specifically when working with someone who's in a family dynamic, um, I don't work with youth anymore, but I'll still work with those who are like maybe like 17 to 20. And so they're still kind of fresh in their family dynamic or, or still deeply connected to their parents in different ways. And some of the, a lot of the work that I end up doing is deconstructing kind of this narrative you mentioned at the beginning that it's like, there's something wrong with the child and there's something happening there and everyone needs to look there. And instead helping them see as well as their family in, in doing some psychoeducation that what we know about food and body struggles or eating disorders or anxiety, OCD too as well, is that the child actually manifests the symptomology of what else is happening in the family system. So if we have a family system that has a lot of anxiety or a lot of secrets or there's things pushed away, it makes sense that a child would sense that in their body and then kind of act that out for the whole family system. And so in this way, the child kind of becomes the mirror of everything else that's going on. Instead of them being the problem, they're actually the opportunity for resolution for the rest of the family because they've manifested all of this in their, in their body and in their psyche and how they show up. So that kind right. of mirrors your experience. It's a very different frame uh, than how eating disorders were treated maybe even 10 years ago um, in residential places. But I, thankfully, that narrative of the child being the dysfunctional one is changing, thankfully. <laughs> Not helpful. Right. Because it's like that child is kind of like the the scream for help for them but also Mm -hmm. the scream for help for something to change within the family because it's not like a kid just has a perfect life and then decides oh I'm gonna have an eating disorder Mm -hmm. but I also will say 
Um, you know, perhaps my dance background also triggered it because when I was a young girl, I was in dance and I did, I did compare my body quite a bit, but it didn't manifest into an eating disorder until I was triggered in that family dynamic way. So maybe it was like cooking and like ready, yeah. um, if that makes sense. And but yeah, oftentimes I, in working, I've worked with a lot of people in the entertainment industry, a lot of dancers from my own background in dance. And that's often what I hear. It's oftentimes not necessarily that the dance environment brought the thing forward. It laid all of these behaviors kind of there in the background. It like set the stage. And then there was something that happens and all like the lights come on and the stage of the eating disorder performance is just like fully enacted. Um, And that's what I kind of hear again and again about those environments like dance or entertainment or modeling it's like they lay this foundation that still needs some kindling and I feel like that is kind of a mirror of societally what we see again and again and again is the societal messages kind of lay this all out but there needs to be some type of activation for someone to really fall into that level of looking for salvation through food and body looking for an escape yeah um Man, so what? So I know that I'm not the only one here listening in this scenario because, um, so things were different back then. You know, when we're younger and we're we're self-destructing, whether it's you know toxic behavior, eating disorder, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. Um, but now, fast forward and say, you know, we're adults and our life is better, but if there's still toxicity occurring in our family dynamic, even from afar, that can be enough of a trigger to, to not fully recover. Would, would you say that that's still an a underlying issue of, of many people trying to recover? Absolutely, yes. I think that some of the um, – if there was one part of my job that I would feel is sometimes disheartening, and this would be the one, and I talk about this, and I was like, do you supervision with and colleagues – It's really seeing, um, I work with those who are femme identifying, so I'll use that language, seeing someone who is femme identifying really struggling um, and really working really, really hard to change their life, to heal, to recover, to have a different experience and other people in the family system just not understanding, not getting it not knowing they're they're participating in it through their lack of kind of engagement or involvement or you know a lot of times in the experiences of sexual violence like perpetuating more um, violation by not believing someone or not honoring them or not sharing their story and being transparent Um, and I see the same thing with food and body kind of going on Um, and we know research-wise like if your mother struggles from an eating disorder you are you know, have a 50% chance of hereditarily taking that on nature nurture. We don't know, but we do know it runs in family systems. And it, that makes it very hard to live a different life when you don't have a different experience of how life could be lived. Yeah, like you don't know how things could be if you haven't seen it or experienced it. So it's really hard to grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's just really, it's sad. It is sad because, um, I mean, I I don't like to keep bringing up my experience, but it's just kind of, it'll help people relate because um, for me, I was living with my mom and my stepdad during COVID um, and it was very fucked up because 
like, uh, you know, I'm 30 years old and all these things were resurfacing and triggering me. And I was like, yeah, this is why I had an eating disorder. This is why, this is how it developed being around this. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, um, humbling and it was a learning experience to say the least. And I, I got out of there and it's very, um, I don't know the word. It's just very yeah, disheartening, like, like, like you said, because my mom is not changing and my stepdad's not changing. And um, it's hard for me to break past that layer or that plateau um, when I'm continue when I continue to get um, triggered by the things she says or the things that she does. And that's interesting that you said um that eating disorders, if your mom has one, you have 50% chance because I, I do think that my mom had and has one, not your typical eating disorder, but I mean, our parents are baby boomers. And back then, I don't think eating disorders were like studied or labeled or understood at all. And just, I, you know, when I look back, I think that maybe she, she did have disordered eating. Um, so it makes complete sense as to why maybe I was the lucky one to get it in my family. But um, yeah, it's just how can you help a client who is doing all the work and the shadow work and the the trying to heal physically and journaling and all these things, you know, but that one piece, their, their family isn't changing and they're triggered and maybe it's politics related, maybe it's sexual abuse related, um, how do you help them continue on that healing path, even though the toxic family dynamic is still there that maybe triggered them to get that in the mm-hmm. first place? Um, I deeply encourage my clients to find those connections elsewhere. And I just look to, I'll, I'll speak to my experience on my mother's side of the family. There's lots of women, uh, lots of female connection available to me, but um not welcoming or not open to having a conversation around sexual violence. I essentially disclosed my story and like lost, lost them just out of discomfort, out of their own discomfort, not cruelty or lack of kindness. They just could not handle it because it it touched too much of their own lived experiences in, in different ways, very different ways, but still. And And so for myself, kind of going through that, and I'm so grateful for my therapist at the time, she deeply encouraged me to go really invest in female and feminine connections to have the experiences that I was never going to have from my family, to have the experience of going over to my yoga teacher's house. And she's like, here's Brene Brown's book, and I made your lemon tea, and what would you like to talk about this week? Like, how are you doing with things? Or I'm having Thanksgiving. Are you coming? Or I've noticed you at yoga class lately and you're looking a little thin. And she's one example of many, many, many women who stepped into that role of what we would perceivably call like aunt or big sister or older cousin or mother or grandmother um, and offered me that thing that my family system was never going to offer me. It, it just, it wasn't going to happen. And I'm actually really grateful that I had a therapist who was probably too blunt in other ways. But in this moment, she kind of just said like, to me, straight to the point, you're not going to get this from your family. If you want that type of connection, you're going to have to find it somewhere else. Where would you like to find it? And do you want to start finding it today? 
And I was like, okay, like my therapist is telling me my family's not going to give me what I want. And I've spent 20 years with them and I'm not seeing anything. So I think I'm going to go try. And I think that attitude of agency and autonomy and also acceptance, because it's not a place of like, I'm trying to get you to change or I'm resisting or you're wrong or I'm more developed. It's none of that. It's just like, I accept that you're here and I am here and my needs are this and this and you can't give me this and this but they can. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that I am judging you or upset with you or dislike you or disowning you. It just means the things that I need are not things you can give me. And actually in standing in that place, I'm doing the most accepting, loving, compassionate thing for our connection in this present moment and our connection for it to ever be is by just radically accepting what is and what is not and getting what I need where I can get it. Oh my God, yeah. Because if we're constantly on this treadmill, running on this treadmill to like get them to change in the way that we feel like they need to change or the way that they need to be, but they don't, that's like a never ending mission and it's exhausting. And like, I love that that idea of like I guess it's like recreating your like since your mother or since your aunts um, or your family couldn't give you what you needed you're like reparenting and like finding a a new channel to like recreate that experience that you needed Mm -hmm. and it it's it's sticky and it's hard work and as a clinician now guiding people through it it's I've never seen someone gracefully go through this process. It's hard. These are like deep wounds. It takes a lot of internal love to say, I'm, I'm just going to accept that this is my need. And even though I'm so socially and culturally conditioned to think that you are the only person in the world who can meet it for me, mm. that's actually not true. Yeah, and, because that's suffering. I mean, in Buddhism, I hate to like keep bringing up Buddhism, but... Um, the constant attachment to an outcome or Mm -hmm. the constant trying to get something to work, that Mm. is suffering. Absolutely. Yes. And it's oftentimes the the more we strive for something, the more we end up doing the exact behaviors that push it away. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, so Buddhism definitely applies here and non-attachment um, and that deep practice and that our loving kindness is like so fundamental when we're talking about family systems. Yeah, metta is something that I'm really trying to cultivate and like they call it radical, radical acceptance for a reason because it feels fucking crazy. It feels <laughs> radical. It does not feel normal at all to just for me to sit here and say, okay, well, my mom is the way that she is and she's going to continue to not realize that she's emotionally kind of abusing me in in these ways of choosing my stepfather over me Mm -hmm. or choosing, you know, this over me. And um, but what came up for me when you were saying like you just have to kind of accept that they are that way um, is that maybe my mom doesn't know any better and it that's the piece that might help people 
be able to cultivate radical acceptance and compassion towards their family members who don't realize what they're doing. Because for my mom, it's like, if I want to take it back to when this all occurred, it's like she lost her home. She felt probably out of control and she, she married this fuckface, my stepdad, um, because she was probably forced to. She probably didn't know any other way and maybe she was just trying to financially protect her and her kids. Mm-hmm. So when I think – and it's that's in my subconscious. Like I know this, but at the same time I'm like, but that's not okay. So it's like this dance. But at the end of the day um, – what what this is saying and what what you're saying so beautifully is that acceptance is the only way really it and it's deeply uncomfortable that place of just accepting this is what it is and you mentioned something else that that place of acknowledgement of like I don't know the conditions around someone's behaviors or why they're acting the way that they are but I can hypothesize or I can speculate or I can do some of that um, compassionate inquiry into considering maybe they are doing the best that they can or or maybe they don't have the tools or they don't know any different just yet. And that doesn't excuse, ever excuse the action someone takes, but it does allow us to move more deeply into a place of acceptance from which we can create barriers or boundaries or whatever is appropriate to shield um, the consequences of their actions or the consequences of them living in their unconscious. Yeah, because they're they're in their unconscious for the most part. I mean, if they're not realizing or recognizing how they're hurting their child or their family member, it's like they don't have the tools or the language to to change. And like, you know, going back to like the neuropathways and trauma and, you know, not knowing another way. I mean, our our parents are on a different energy frequency. It's like, this is the way that it is, you know, I, and I've tried to to chip away at my mom. Um, I lived with her and and my stepdad for about seven months, eight months. And believe me when I say I was chipping away every day at what I could, you know, trying to get in there, trying to, to get her to see, you know, in, in this way that, you know, how, how do you not understand? And, I just have a lot of empathy for people who are permanently living with with family who just I'm not going to say they're never going to change, but it's um, just a very, very big pile of rocks that you're moving and it just seems like it's never ending. Mm-hmm. Change is often challenging and slow, at least authentic change that lasts is slow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially during um, all of these changes that are happening, you know, politically. I, I know you're in Canada, so I've, <laughs> I'm jealous of you. <laughs> um, and kind of on a lighter note, um, I've been binge watching um, Handmaid's Tale, which, I mean, is just a very, very dark show. But mm-hmm. kind of, it, I don't know if you've seen it, but they're, it, the whole politics and there's sexual abuse and the government threw like threw everybody out and pretty much re redominated and everybody's trying to go to Canada so I don't know that's just <laughs> <laughs> <Take> foreshadowing <it. laughs> 
Yes, definitely. The world is in a state of flux and shifting. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have a lot of clients who are in America or a lot of your clients mainly in Canada? Um, All of my clinical therapy clients are, for the most part, BC-based. Actually, all of them are. And then all of my coaching clients, or most of my coaching clients, are based in the United States or overseas. So I do work with people that are across borders, but more in the realm of coaching, um, which looks more like embodiment practices or sexuality, um, more in those spaces than specific trauma reprocessing. So it's a little bit different work, um, but I deeply enjoy it. So I I get to hear lots about what's going on over there and how it's impacting people. Yeah, I'm sure you do. (laughs) That's interesting. I mean, do you want to, I'm kind of curious how that, that looks like in your work, um, your life coaching and and the embodiment, like what, if I were a new client, what would that look like? Um, When speaking about embodiment, the first kind of step is getting an assessment of where someone is with their body, what their relationship is. If it's struggled with food and body or addiction or toxic family systems, it's acknowledging all of the ways that one has moved out of their body and doing a lot of psychoeducation around different types of trauma, big T trauma, little T trauma, Um, and then kind of exploring sensations and moving into the body and finding those barriers and blocks. And that's kind of the space of embodiment. It's usually with the clients I work with, it's more of a place of curiosity. It's oftentimes, I said, related to sexuality, like I don't experience pleasure or I can't reach an orgasm or when I'm having sex, my mind goes here. And so then it becomes a lot of mindfulness-based work um, and re-engaging the body in like a holistic and full way. That's interesting. I feel like I would be the perfect candidate because I've been <laughs> celibate for the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because now a lot of people have been celibate, not trying to, but because of the pandemic. And it's not funny, but I do laugh because I hear a lot of podcasts and people talking about how long they've gone without sex and some of it is to heal um, and to like cleanse because I mean, I've, I do have sexual trauma and sexual assault trauma and, and toxic relationships with men um, in the past. And my way of healing through it was just to be completely celibate. And now I'm in this space of, okay, well, when I am ready to have sex, how's that going to happen? <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, one, I don't drink and do drugs anymore. And I don't put myself into a sobriety box because, hey, I'm going to a a wedding next weekend and I'm going to have a drink probably. But I am in this space of like, okay, well, what does like sober-ish sex feel like? What does it look like? How do you engage with someone when you're just being who you are? And sex is such a weird thing when you're trying to like move through the trauma that's sexual related too so that's really interesting that you that you do that Mm -hmm. yeah I do a lot of work in that realm and it really comes from that place of acknowledging like moving through trauma yes requires reprocessing but it also requires repatterning and having new experiences and finding that fluidity between pain and pleasure so ideally regardless of what state you're in there's still a part of the self that's holding on to a sense of peace or a sense of understanding or acceptance that this too shall pass 
joy is going to pass, sorrow is going to pass, can we observe both with the same level of attachment? And not get attached to either the suffering or Mm. the bliss because Mm -hmm. when that happens then you're bound to suffer more absolutely (laughs) it kind of is just like this this constant like just jumping from one thing to another and that's why I guess they say neutrality is the best in you know in hermeticism and buddhism it's like Mm -hmm. the neutral way is the best because then you know you're not suffering, but at the same time, like this is a new age. And I feel like it's, you got to find that balance of being excited for things and how much of that is too much excitement and attachment and expectation. And like, I think grasping that balance is such a invigorating thing when you when you can cultivate that balance it's like nothing is throwing me off like I'm not gonna go crazy over this if it doesn't go okay and mm-hmm. I don't know like what's been I know we're getting to the end but um what's been like the biggest plateau or roadblock um in your healing practice and in, in your journey um Ironically, not ironically, um, definitely the space of sexuality. I, for a really long time, um, after kind of going through eating disorder recovery and feeling very confident in that, I remember I was walking down the street one day and I was like, oh my God, I am like rampage thinking of men right now. And I just <laughs> kind of had this like gaspy moment. I was like, oh my God, this feels like how I used to think about food. And I like ran to my therapist later that day and I was like, blah, blah, blah. and she was like, yes, I've been telling you this for a year subtly, like glad you got the message walking out of the subway. And that for me was then kind of this moment of like, okay, removing the attachment that I had to men and the external validation that I would get. And in lots of ways, romantic relationships with the right kind of mindset can near eating disorders. And I say mindset because you can apply the same dysfunctional stuff anywhere that you go. And so then there was a kind of a phase in my life where I worked the realm of relationships and and felt more secure there and confident there. But the realm of sexuality and sexual intimacy for me was kind of this place of of plateau where even though I had all this history of sexual trauma, for me, sex didn't feel disembodied. It felt really empowered. It felt all of these things. And you know, I would go to therapists and they would kind of question me on it and ask me about it. And I, I I didn't really have anything juicy to say. I was like, I don't know why this one part of my life feels untouched, even though that's where all of the stuff is. And what I had found was that I had just really developed a, a beautiful way of socially falling into those sexual scripts and being disassociated, but not too much. And, and kind of where I found my plateau was having a partner an experience of sexual violence later in my life that really called me into questioning and being curious and really deeply looking at the space of sex really authentically and honestly. And for me, it's sexuality is this place where I can really know how I'm doing with myself by how connected I am to my sense of sexuality or we say the erotic, which just means your life force energy. So I just, sexuality and life force energy for me are kind of interchangeable. 
but I would say the biggest plateau or the place where I'm constantly finessing and finding that edge is in the realm of sexuality, is in that space of partnership, is in that space of play, because to be you to have any <laughs> really deep and meaningful sexual connection, the premise of that is really being in your body and mm-hmm. to really be in your body in such an intimate and raw way. You really have to know your unconscious and your shadow and your triggers and the stuff that's stuck in the bottom of the basement that no one wants to look at. That is the stuff that will come up in the space of sexuality. So I would say for me, that's kind of where I'm constantly working and expanding and growing. And my path there has been a wibbly wobbly. I, I went and sat in silence last year for almost two months and had like this experience of spontaneous orgasms. And I was like, this is not why I came here, but this is beautiful. And then it kind of led me to realize like, oh yeah, I'd sat all this time in silence and being in my body after this experience of sexual violence that had happened previously in my kind of adult, but still therapeutic kind of career and processing that, reconnecting with my body so intimately and having it have all those sensations of pleasure without any imagery, without any touch, that made me go, oh, there's a different way of being with the body that actually is so delightful, but it requires so much intimacy, so much self-trust, so much self-insight, so much time. And so that's kind of where I'm, I'm constantly playing and expanding and growing. And there's oftentimes people have the misconception because I write about sex and sexuality a lot and it's a big part of the work that I, know, I, I do. Love, I love everything <laughs> you write. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, this misconception that I'm passionate about sexuality, which it, which is true in part, but what I'm most passionate about is just being in the body and mm-hmm. sex and sexuality is this one space that capitalism tells us that we should feel pleasure, we should play, we should have fun and where we get that. And so I kind of use that as, as a leverage point to get people to become curious to be in their body through this one space in society that says, here in the bedroom, you should feel something. And to feel in the bedroom, you have to feel everywhere else. You have to be in your body. So Mm. that's kind of, yeah. I relate to that so much because, yeah, and it's not like you're going out there and saying, everybody should just have sex and be okay with it. Like you're (laughs) saying you should be okay, like to be in your body. And then once that happens, then the doors will unlock to feeling comfortable in, in sexuality and and it's just there's so many layers you know mm-hmm. like i'm i'm right there with you because now i'm in this realm of e- recovering from body related and food related things which sexuality is all body and mm-hmm. it's all um confidence and it's all like knowing who you are and finding that that trust to open up to somebody it takes time and I love what you said about how you went to go sit for two months and you're having these orgasms I have been celibate like I said a few moments ago and I and I also don't really masturbate because that's just my own trauma like I just don't really enjoy it um I have done it before for everyone who's listening like yes I have done it and um but I have dreams where I orgasm Mm-hmm. And it happens quite frequently. And I think that's my body signaling like, hey, like, it's okay, mm-hmm. you know? 
So it's really interesting to feel my body being activated um, after this like long, quote unquote, like sit, like it's as if I've been in, in a retreat um, for the past year and a half of <laughs> no sex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um... <laughs> so everybody, if you want to have, you know, orgasms in your sleep, just don't have sex and your body will do it for you. <laughs> something like that I don't know I think my body is just like yo if you're not gonna fucking go do it then we're just gonna have to figure it out (laughs) um but where can everybody find you and if they wanted to like book a session with you and I know that you you do zoom sessions and all that Mm -hmm. um yes you can find me online at Elijah Lee that's my Instagram that's my website super simple I keep it easy Um, In regards to booking, as soon as you go on my website, there's a link there. You'll see it. Um, If you have any questions, um, again, super simple. It's just info at elijolie.com. Yeah. We'll put this all in the show notes, too. Um, Super simple. (laughs) Yeah. And your Instagram always has beautiful quotes and words of wisdom and just very light and airy. That's the energy that I feel when I look at it. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So... Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was lovely to be here. <laughs>